Talk Live. It's Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, your host, and thank you for joining us. I am the creator of the Liberty Conspiracy, which you can find every Monday through Friday live starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to get involved and watch and chat, hit us up on Rumble or look us up on Rockfin. Of course, both under the title Liberty Conspiracy. You can also listen or watch on my Twitter feed when we go live, and that is at Gard Goldsmith. That's G-A-R-D Goldsmith. And I should mention, if you're looking for any of my fiction, and I've got three novellas out there and novels to come, just head over to Amazon or to Barnes & Noble and look up Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, Goldsmith, and you'll find what I hope is some good stuff. Thanks for listening, and let's rock on for freedom. That's right, one and all. It's time for us to go educational. We don't need no education. We don't need no force control. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Oh, man. I, I still haven't seen this whole movie all the way through. Between this and Alice Cooper, school's out, right? All in all, it's just a brick in the wall. Awesome, awesome. All right, so let's go back and watch that footage. That was, if you saw the very opening of the show, if you're just joining us, you might not have seen it. Before our theme, we had a little special presentation of Education Secretary Cardoza, who was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and he was either intentionally misquoting Ronald Reagan or ignorantly misquoting Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan's famous line about the nine most dangerous, most frightful words that he has heard. And those are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Nine or eight? Well, let's get back to it, shall we? Yes. Let's get into, you know what, Ronald Reagan and his statement. And then we'll watch the education secretary again. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know, we're going to set up follow-up calls with every governor we met with to make sure we're available. Um, as uh, I think it was President Reagan said, we're from the government. We're here to help. Remember last time we went through this, we talked about how Elizabeth Warren got it wrong. It's nine, but Elizabeth Warren said it was eight. <laughs> and I'm counting them like, no, it's eight. And even if you took I'm and turned it into I am, that would make it one more. So anyway, but leave it to them. Perhaps they went to public school. So Cardoza, Cardoza doing his magic thing, right? Well, I've got a little personal history that I want to relate to you about this, okay? 
And yes, I did go to public school and thankfully I didn't end up looking like that or getting ground up in the meat grinder. I fought back. And that's perhaps part of the reason why I'm so anti-authoritarian now, because I could see the ripoff that was taxation, forcing people to pay into this system back when I was a little, little kid. Maybe it was because of my parents. And that's where I want to go. Um, You might be aware, of course, that the education department is one of the most recently started departments. You got the Homeland Security and all that stuff. But the Department of Education was started in the last, essentially the last year of the Carter administration. When Reagan took office, he tried to get rid of the Department of Education. It's not constitutional. It is a central command and control authority that, of course, has seen more and more money year after year with worse and worse results, with more and more political battles, unions working to play favorites on a national level. And even as we know, that man Cardoza, and let's put him back on the screen, shall we? That man Cardoza, right there, working with the people at the Department of Justice and the FBI and secretly sending letters to the members of the National School Boards Association, that's NSBA, and I've written numerous articles on this for MRC-TV, the Department of Education working with the National School Boards Hardcore Left-Wing Association to have the NSBA, this is inspired by people in Cardona's office. Cardona saying, did I call him Cardoza before? Cardona saying, hey, why don't you send us letters claiming that you are afraid of terrorist terroristic activities from parents who might be visiting school board meetings. And then we will get the Department of Justice to investigate these people. In other words, total strong arm tactics, threats, all sorts of aggression, and the use of our our tax money to engage in that sort of intimidation of parents. And just the word of that getting out is going to intimidate parents, right? So we got the word out. Other people got the word out. And sure enough, this guy Cardona was involved. Or was it one of his assistants and he has cover? No, I think he was involved. Well, Ronald Reagan tried to stop that organization. And I have personal knowledge about how some of that went down because my father ended up being one of the few people on a very small team brought into Washington in the early 80s to try to eliminate the Department of Education. Of course, they failed. He was there with Charlotte Iserbeet and a number of others. They met Sam Blumenfeld, who ended up influencing Charlotte greatly and John Taylor Gatto greatly. And they worked very, very hard to try to eliminate the Department of Education. But while my father was there, people were breaking into my father, Carter holdovers at the Department of Education who didn't want it eliminated. They were breaking breaking into my father's filing cabinets and waylaying files that had a particular code written on them that was supposed to be for Reagan's eyes only. For your eyes only. Yeah. They were having meetings at restaurants outside of their offices because they thought their offices were bugged. That was my father, Paul H. Goldsmith. 
He was there in the middle of this spy-like battle. And of course, we know what was victorious. We know that the government was victorious because the government engages in all sorts of tactics, whether it be cajoling, whether it be their corrupt tactics of getting people addicted to the money on the state level and attaching them to it, whether it be through intimidation, through telling various states that they must conform to Title IX or they won't get highway money, it has grown and grown and grown. And of course, the ideology is all collectivist. And then they added their cultural Marxism years ago, certain books. I remember, what was it, over a decade ago, they wanted to eliminate Mark Twain stuff because, of course, Mark Twain uses the N-word, even though his books are about friendship between people of different races. Amazing. So now we've got Cardona misquoting Reagan. And the, the, one of the amazing things about this that, that really gets me is that they won't acknowledge the different tactics and strategies that government actually does use. When government says, I'm here to help, government is here to strong arm, here to get people addicted, here to conjole, to entice, to mischaracterize, to punch around, and to eliminate any vestige of their constitution. And just to let you know, here's a little bit of information on what's happened since my father was there. And my father and Charlotte both left, and they both said, we're not going to be able to stop this. We're just taking people's money, and we're not going to do it anymore. Both of them did that. Of course, Charlotte went up to Maine and um, lived the rest of her life up in Maine, fighting Fighting to the end, Charlotte is a bit. My dad really helped me in learning all about the ins and outs of politics, giving me books and things. And he would go um, uh, t- touring all around, talking about economics and high schools and things like that. And as he got older, I would help him. I would load stuff in the car, drive with him. And uh, it was great. We had wonderful times together. Let me give you an idea of what's happened since 1980, the official start date of the Department of Education. Here is their official Excel spreadsheet. And this will show you what it was like in 1980. To total Department of Education expenditures for 1980, they have the appropriation and they have the president's budget. So the appropriation, the president's budget was from 1979. The appropriation for 1980, this is in thousands. So that's 14 billion, 11 million, 52,000. Now, and you have to, you have to toggle this all the way to the right. Let's go to the latest data that the government provides in their statistical outlay from 2020. Department of Education, 75 billion. That was the president's budget. And the overall appropriation was even higher. $94 billion. Almost 
hundred billion dollars. Again, as a quick reminder, let's go back to the start. Oh, those heady days. 14 billion, 11 million for the appropriation, and nearly 100 billion dollars in 2020. That was under Trump. That was under Trump. So, that will bring us towards the end of the show when you get to see a choice segment from David Knight's fantastic interview with David Stockman about his new book coming out in January about Donald Trump and how destructive he was to the economy. In fact, I think I have a photograph of the cover of the book right here. Trump's War on Capitalism by David Stockman. And it is excellent. And as we can see, Trump did not do anything to reduce the size of government. And of course, Ronald Reagan tried to get reductions in expenditures during his first agreement, but it didn't work. The government kept growing. And part of it was because he was so reliant on the Congress to pass what he wanted for national defense because he was such a hardliner and anti-communist. He thought, well, we got to keep spending on the military. It's patriotic, don't you know? No, not necessarily patriotic. So that's a big deal. Now, I want to turn to a little something that I think you might find um, important. Uh, I want to just mention something about the nature of government. And I think the education department is a perfect example of it. My father learned it. I think you've learned it as well. Robert Higgs has mentioned it. We talk about the ratcheting effect, right? Where to, uh, to paraphrase Hillary Clinton, to paraphrase Rahm Emanuel, they never squander a good crisis or they never seem to tire to manufacture their own crisis in government, whatever level of government. Normally, we see this manifest most often in the largest sense on the national level, but they're trying to do it internationally now with the UN and the WHO. We'll talk about that. The EU, that sort of thing. Um, So they'll claim a pandemic when there isn't a pandemic. It's a crisis. Got to take care of it internationally. And now we're going to set up the WHO spying and speech silencing and jab mandates and passports and all that stuff with their pandemic treaty and their pandemic rules changes that they want to have. But over the years, we see these sorts of things. And as Robert Higgs says, they come up with emergencies and then they come up with the answers. The government apparatchiks, the government bureaus, the small Soviets on the state levels, the large Soviets on the federal level, and they just are they're self-perpetuating. They never stop because if you are to stop them and there's some debate right now as to whether or not some of the Republicans might try to speak up about Obamacare and try to reduce it in scope. Well, then how dare you? Because people's lives depend on that because people get normalcy bias, just like in England, 1947, they start the National Health Service. People are aghast if you should ever possibly mention that 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 is immoral and inefficient. How dare you? People could lose their health care. In the meantime, they're literally withholding life-preserving, life-sustaining hydration and food in the national health system in the Liverpool Protocol 
And these people have it in their heads that there can be no other way to do it, that if you at all oppose forcing people to pay into this inefficient and immoral system, you're the bad guy, right? So the education department now, if you oppose the national level education department, if you oppose Obamacare, you clearly want people to die. And it couldn't be done any other way. It was never done any other way in American history, except if you read books like The Tragedy of American Compassion and, you know, from um, uh, from Mutual Aid to Welfare State by David Beto, uh, Tragedy uh, American uh, 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 Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olasky. Uh, so check out those books. There's lots of good stuff at Mises Institute about this sort of stuff. Uh, Tom D. Lorenzo's written about it. Uh, Thomas Woods has written about it. Uh, great articles. FEE has a lot of good ones. So, you know, the historical precedents are there. But the people just think that the government's got to do it. And then if you oppose it, you're evil, you're mean, you're callous, you're cruel, you're cold. They are part of that system of addicts now. They're philosophically addicted to the idea they might not even be recipients of the money themselves. But if they are recipients of the money, then you're even worse in their eyes in many cases because you could have been harming their own family. And they don't see the opportunities that are lost. It's the Frederick Bossier, what is seen and what is not seen. They only see the government program, the broken window being fixed by the government, not the opportunities lost, not the system that worked in the past that provided health care for lower and lower price without government bureaucracy and force and taxation, without government like the NHS deciding who wins and who loses. So education is a perfect example of it, but I want to tell you a quick story because a friend of mine, I, I can't, won't go into details. He might come on the show as Mr. X. He was in Washington on January 6th. He texted me earlier today, and I thought I would relate this to you in this section of the program. Uh, as we start off with Cardona uh, and the, uh, you know, the uh, misquoting of Reagan and going back into the history of the education department and this ratcheting effect, um, the, the politicians, the advocates for the state typically are also those people who want to control it or use it for, you know, gamesmanship or that sort of thing. And they want to expand it. Right. So, historically, they have shown a keen affinity for basically defying their own so-called rules to answer either crises that they have produced or that they describe are there that aren't really there. Like Hillary Clinton once said on the Today Show, there's a silent crisis for child daycare because they wanted to have federally funded daycare, not just federally funded kindergarten. They wanted to get the kids like right out of the crib. It was a silent crisis. In other words, it wasn't a crisis. Nobody was actually speaking up about it. So it was a silent crisis. We're just too stupid to figure it out. But they will create their own crises. So I just jotted something down here. I said, um, I said they have, yeah, they'll, they'll, they have this keen affinity. They'll be acting in defiance of their own so-called rules. And then they establish precedents. 
and then they either know or they learn that those rarely get pulled back and the people who did those things rarely get punished, which brings me to the January 6th situation. I just saw on television a report from our network affiliate here talking about all the hours of January 6th footage that are going to be released. They've already started to release them. This is days later. We already know about the 44,000 hours, and they're going to release them in tranches. We know about that. This was like some new revelation to them. And speaking with my friend, he was there. Luckily, he thinks he wasn't seen on camera. They haven't come after him. He didn't go to the Capitol building. So he looks like he's safe. But what amazes me is we were talking about this. The way that these people like Nancy Pelosi and like um, people like AOC and Chuck Schumer and um, oh, who knows, There's so many others out there, the way that they have misused their power to put these people in prison. I think a lot of people are expecting that there's going to be at least something that can be done for some of these guys. But even within that hope, I get a sense that a lot of people are saying, you know, I don't expect much. And that's because those of us who watch the habits of government, who watch the MO of the state, we know that they expand the state and these ne'er-do-wells and criminals who do these actions, who engage in these things like the January 6th commission, throwing these accusations at people, getting the FBI to go after parents and things like that, they rarely, if ever, see any sort of legal ramifications or financial ramifications for what they've done. And the systems they start, they set the precedent. And if they have to stop for a little while, well, they'll They'll pick it back up again. They'll do it again. So we look at January 6th. People like Pelosi, they engaged in that stuff. Clearly, clearly, they knew what they were doing was inappropriate. But they knew that they were going to be able to use it for rhetorical purposes. And if they could stay in power, they could get these people in prison. And the majority of them would would stay in prison. They will stay there. They won't get new trials, the vast majority of these people. There's politics inside Congress. There are politics in the, inside the states that make this systemically perpetuated. Once they establish the precedent, they can continue with the precedent. There's more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Tired of the ever-inflating U.S. dollar? You can live your life on Dash instead with some handy websites. BitRefill.com has been accepting Dash for years and has a ton of big-name retailers and brands including grocers, gas stations, phone refills, Amazon, and even prepaid MasterCards. Plus, many of their gift cards are available at a discount. But what about paying your bills? Spritz.Finance can do that, and they can send dollars to your bank account in case you still need those for some reason. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. 
It's Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by the treasury. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to use and get Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. That's Dash. We look at FISA. They have the church committee hearings. Why do they have the church committee hearings? Just before Jimmy Carter starts the education department, they had the church committee hearings because the Black Panthers and MLK and other peace advocates and so-called radicals were being spied upon by the FBI without warrants. So in order to address that wrongdoing, which they went and did, they didn't have any qualms about it. They just did it. Because those offices had already been established unconstitutionally, the FBI, the CIA, Operation Mockingbird with CIA employees, half of the CBS uh, employee cadre in Hollywood, in I mean, at the CBS building where they shot Twilight Zone, right? Half of those people who were working there were in the employee in some way by the CIA in Operation Mockingbird. Right. That's where the Mockingjay comes from for the Hunger Games. It's a reference to Operation Mockingbird. So. It's amazing. So they already had those precedents established. They they came out of so-called wartime. They did declare war. But we know that FDR set things up so that the Japanese would attack. We know that he had internal communications with with Churchill that show that he was a deceit, deceitful weasel. We know that he broke the Constitution over and over again with his alphabet soup of agencies. We know that he wanted to pack the Supreme Court, which is the linchpin. If you can get the Supreme Court, you're all set, right? Or if you can get various state state court levels, circuit court levels, see those people fostered, see the roots grown like Soros has with various so-called prosecutors, then see them appointed to higher and higher offices. You've got yourself, uh, uh, you've got yourself an appeals court system that not only might start to change things, but from which future presidents can then draw that crop of hardcore statists. So right now, the exception is this conservative so-called Supreme Court, which isn't really looking at the nuts and bolts of the Constitution, right? Like their Bruin level. They have the two two tiers for Bruin, the text of the Second Amendment, and then whether or not there are historical analogs to some of the gun attacks today, 
Well, if there are historical analogs from 1810 that are breaches of the, the strict wording in the Second Amendment, why are you referring to those historical analogs as valid? Because they're not. Because they breach the text of the Second Amendment. It's very clear. So you don't go to, well, was there a historical analog in 1805 that was a breach of the Second Amendment? Uh, because then it would be acceptable when you already said you've got to look at the wording in the Second Amendment. I mean, it's totally counterintuitive and stupid, right? So we see the church committee come around as a supposed answer. It's an answer to the spying on people like MLK. And what do they do? As an answer, the church committee says, oh, man, there were major, major problems. Do they change anything? No, they don't. They literally write a new statute that basically gives the federal government carte blanche to breach the Fourth Amendment. But they say, oh, well, you can breach the Fourth Amendment against foreigners because they're not Americans. And then if the foreigners are talking to Americans, then Section 702, you can spy on the Americans. And if those Americans are talking to other Americans, you can spy on them, too. And they just expand it. It's like the Department of Education, right? So this stuff never dies. And the January 6th thing, I just want to mention to you, I'm really glad that that friend of mine, uh, we've spoken on the phone numerous times and so on and so forth. I'm really glad he didn't go to the Capitol anywhere near it. He's safe. And I don't know if you know people or if you were there or what your thoughts are, but I wouldn't expect much from the videos, but it is a lesson. Again, it's another lesson. If we look at what Cardona said today and Reagan, it opens up thoughts about the Department of Education, which opens up thoughts about the M.O. of government, getting people addicted, the thuggery of it. And thug, thuggies comes from a term in India. They were like highway robbers in India. Um, the thuggery of it. Uh, the the addiction of it, the drug dealing money, money scam of it. And in addition to that, what I think is uh, a, an, an analog to fascism, which is federal government to state payoffs. It's still corporate. It's not necessarily what we would see as classic business corporations. But to me, uh, we're seeing the states becoming part of a large so-called federalist fascist system where they're so addicted to the centrally created money that funds the central government, which then hands it out. And the states are so indebted to because they have started their own um, uh, uh, handouts and social welfare programs to such an extent that they're dependent on the money that they expect to come from the feds. So the education department, it's not going away. Charlotte, my father, they worked super hard. They tried to stop it. It's not going away. Some of the people behind the church committee, maybe they were honest dealers. The spying's not going away. The FBI's not going away, right? Cardona's not going away, despite the fact that the education department was exposed for working with the National School Boards Association to try to portray concerned parents going to woke school board administration meetings to try to portray them as potential domestic terrorists. I think the only thing that I'll be satisfied with getting rid of is potential ignorance on the part of anybody who might be interested and wants to fill in some of the stuff that I could provide in any information and supplying my own ignorance with new information that I might get from other people. I get great satisfaction out of that. I don't think I'm going to be changing anything. 
All I can do is try to get out the information and speak for truth and maybe prepare for my own way to get away from this stuff and find kindred spirits. So a little something to think about there. I just wanted to make sure that uh, I brought that up. You know, oh, one other thing. We look at the uh, the church committee hearings. I also wrote down, not only did the church committee hearings lead to FISA, but of course we saw the growth of the CIA and the NSA and their spying. And then we look at one other thing. Don't forget the Snowden revelations. The Snowden revelations saw Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald releasing information about how the NSA and, and, and the CIA were collecting uh, all sorts of communications, right? They were getting, uh, under George W. Bush, don't forget, even before Snowden, they revealed that the W. Bush administration was getting Verizon phone call information. So what do they do? With the Verizon thing, they say, oh, that's very bad. Just like the FISA law that they wrote in 1978, they wrote a new statute allowing the federal government to pay Verizon for all the phone data. So they're circumventing the Fourth Amendment. And we see the NSA continuing to spy on people, regardless of what Ed Snowden did. And I don't think Ed Snowden was a cutout. I don't think that that's the case. I think that Ed Snowden uh, was mistaken in some areas of his uh, information, but I think he did a pretty good job and he was very courageous. Uh, maybe it's a long game show that they're putting on. Um, and maybe Ed Snowden living out in Russia and sacrificing all those things in his life wasn't a real sacrifice. Maybe he's, but I, I do think that uh, he had good intentions and he exposed some real, real bad stuff. And I also think that people like James Clapper should be in prison and others uh, who were involved in a lot of that spying should be in prison. So now let's go to a follow-up to yesterday, everybody. You know, yesterday I read to you my battle, a little bit about my battle with NewsGuard and one particular character who's on the board of NewsGuard. Well, the MRC TV team, they're, of course, part of the um, battle. Uh, I'm just part of their team when I, uh, you know, I'm on contract with them. They have had to answer all sorts of emails and stuff. They've been pushed around by NewsGuard. Uh, they've been threatened with, the, you know, being essentially demonetized, pulled off of NewsGuard's green checkmark list. And so even though, of course, you know, we back up what we say with actual records and hyperlinks, they're always messing with us. Well, they put together the video about that unctuous character, Michael Hayden. And I'd like to show you right now What's been going on this afternoon is I got a lot of messages from people about me taking on, and I'm really probably not going to be face-to-face -face with Michael Hayden any day of the week. I don't think he's going to respond, but people have been responding to this, and I really appreciate this. This is personal. This is familial with my father's work in Washington and how they were breaking into his filing cabinets. This is about friends. This is about people I respect like you and uh, David Knight. And the folks at MRC TV, people like Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, and we'll go through a lot of what they're covering as well. And a lot of other people, people at Redacted, Glenn Greenwald, Ed Snowden. Here we go. This is my battle. This is Guard Against NewsGuard, or one of the people on its board who has been a government shill since he entered the military. 
Hey, are you still able to enjoy Thanksgiving leftovers? Well, beware this far too rich political dish of a guy who just keeps coming back up in one's mental gorge. Hi, everyone. I'm Gardner Goldsmith for MRC TV. And the man, if you want to call him that, is Michael Hayden, a career government parasite who seems to derive twisted pleasure out of twisting reality and sneering at Americans who believe in truth and honesty. And his latest gutter swipe at one of our neighbors came on Twitter slash X, where despite Hayden's leftist goose-stepping allies calling for the site to be silenced, Elon Musk has been expanding speech freedom, perhaps because it helps expose nefarious 'er ne'er-do-wells like Hayden by showing how low they can go. On November 22nd, Hayden, a former CIA and former NSA head and current analyst, as they call them, at CNN, took to Twitter slash X to respond to a rather unfortunate photo post, and he made things worse. The original post from a writer-slash-editor named Alex Cole juxtaposed two pictures, one of a woman holding an American flag, Bible, and handgun, the other of Palestinian suicide bomber Reem Rayashi, who killed herself and four Israelis in a 2004 bombing for which Hamas and the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade claimed credit. Evidently, not much classier than Hayden, Cole captioned the post with, What's the difference? Many people might have ready responses about self-defense, religion, geopolitics, aggression, secular Zionism versus Jewishness, and U.S. and Israeli backing of Hamas to be the political leadership of the population living in Gaza. Well, those weren't on Hayden's list. Instead, he responded with the thug-minded, no different at all. Perhaps you two are shaking your head. Such petulance and childishness on the part of an adult. Well, that could inspire feelings of sadness for Mr. Hayden and his rodent-like attitude. But a closer look at Hayden cautions all to beware of this man. This is, after all, Michael Hayden, the character who recently implied that pro-life Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican of Alabama, should be removed from the human race. This is Michael Hayden, who insinuated that Donald Trump should be executed over his handling of official Trump administration documents at his personal residence. This is Michael Hayden, who in 2013 jokingly called for the extrajudicial assassination of Edward Snowden. This is Michael Hayden, who saw fit to financially ally himself with the unctuous former Homeland Security czar, Michael Chertoff, he who left the W. Bush administration to suddenly make buco bucks by consulting for OSI, the body scanner corporation that got the federal government contract to install Fourth Amendment breaching body scanners at airports. Indeed, Mr. Hayden has a history of contempt for legality, morality, and civil discourse. 
As Trevor Tim wrote in 2017 for the Columbia Journalism Review, quote, Hayden has a long history of making misleading and outright false statements. And by the estimation of many lawyers, likely committed countless felonies during the Bush administration. It is something of a wonder that someone responsible for so many reprehensible acts is now considered a totally above the fray, honest commentator on all issues intelligence. And Tim added, quote, it's easy to see why television bookers keep calling his phone. Hayden smiles and tries to tell jokes like when he joked about putting Edward Snowden on a kill list. So funny. He uses clever turns of phrase. He called the NSA's massive metadata surveillance program dipping our toe in domestic collection. And that was written in 2017. Hayden's had a lot of years since then to add volumes of insipid and uninspired bravado to his foolish flippancy. In fact, calling it flippancy is just far too kind. Hayden is a purveyor of threats, lies, misleading characterizations, character attacks, and hubristic braggadocio, much of it tied to worldwide wrongdoing. And to cap it off, this current CNN analyst also is a fascist, for he is on the board of NewsGuard, the so-called fact check organization recently exposed for its roundabout receipt of our tax money. Yeah, that's right. This man who just compared a Christian gun owner to a suicide bomber is on the board of one of the most powerful so-called speech screeners in U.S. history. And true to his pattern, not only does NewsGuard engage in mischief like hassling MRC TV, I personally have had to spend hours answering their inane, baseless brickbats. But NewsGuard has received massive infusions of tax cash to do it. The connection of political power and corporate power is economic fascism. So it's rather a rich dish to see a deceptive fascist like Hayden impose misleading moral judgment on a photo of a Christian American woman and insinuate that she's a dangerous terrorist. Perhaps Mr. Hayden just wasn't looking right. Perhaps his computer screen was at an odd angle and he actually was seeing a reflection of himself. Thanks for watching one and all. Please like and subscribe. Find us on Rumble where they don't censor us (laughs) and share these with kindred spirits. We love to have you there. Feel free to comment at Rumble. And yes, we still are on YouTube. You can like and share from there as well and double check that you're subscribed. Find us all the time at mrctv.org. That's mrctv.org. And while you're there, please consider donating to the Media Research Center and check out the Media Research Center store. You can also find us on Facebook, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Parler, and of course on X slash Twitter. And if you want to find me on Gab, I'm at Gardner Goldsmith on Gab, and I'm at Gard Goldsmith on Twitter. That's a message to you, Mr. Hayden, if you want to get in touch. Hey, thanks for watching, everybody. For MRC TV, I'm Gardner Goldsmith. So there you go, everybody. I hope that was good. I hope that was rocking. I appreciate the MRC TV team doing such a bang up job. 
really appreciate them uh, going to town like that. And uh, yeah, so if Michael Hayden wants to uh, engage in a in a debate or anything like that, um, I'm right here, Michael. Anytime, buddy. I'm sure we'll have a great time. And I'm sure you'll use totally above-board tactics in your uh, interaction with me in daily life. I'm sure you wouldn't recruit people to start messing with my internet, getting into my bank accounts, or or anything like that, right? Sure. Let's check in uh, with uh, Rockfin and Rumble Chat, see what's happening with everybody over there. I'm going to go to Rumble first. And I noticed that Birdhouse Blues mentioned that the White House Christmas tree has fallen down. White House Christmas tree is falling down, falling down due to wind, just like the president's excuse. Ah, yes, indeed. Ah, yeah. Hey, thanks, Birdhouse Blues, for the positive vibes about uh, and Geesebusters. I appreciate that very much. Appreciate that. Um, uh, nice, nice words on that on that video. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll pass it on to the MRC TV team, too. They're good people. Um, yeah, good people. And uh, also, I, I, I want to thank everybody who is in there. Uh, at uh, at uh, Rockfin as well. Isn't it cool? Because I know the Rockfin guys, you know, they just decided to give it a shot. And uh, I think they've done a pretty good job. Um, you know, there is, you know, there is a little bit of a trick because when people donate, you get the donations in crypto and then you have to translate it. I still haven't been able to translate it yet. I have to talk to uh, David Knight's son to get some advice on that, uh, to try to figure out how to translate it all and get it in there into my bank account and stuff. But uh, it is very, very nice. Uh, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate what Rumble does as well. Uh, great stuff. Good people at both. That uh, I haven't met anybody from Rumble, but I know the MRC TV people have had great interaction with uh, Rumble. And I, I've actually spoken on the phone when I first started with the Rockfin guys, and they were great. They were super nice. You know, I mentioned Tony Arterburn and, and David and so on, and they were like, oh, yeah, Billy Ray Valentine. They're like, oh, yeah, great guys, great guys. I'm like, wow, cool, thanks. That's awesome. So we've got the Michael Hayden story. And, you know, it, it just it makes me think about how we look at these characters and uh, we can see the way that the Constitution has been debased systemically, and we can see the characters who've been involved with the debasement of it. We can see, you know, the way that they use um, they use uh, cajoling, and they make people they make people dependent on the government. Uh, they will sue. They will use strong arm. You know, it's the carrot and the stick approach. All the way as the federal government continues to explode and expand right now to the point where we'll show you something in my uh, Substack Sunday News Assembly to the point where it's it's just out of control. And I'm, you know, very glad I've been getting uh, gold and silver to hold on to. Uh, don't tell Michael Hayden about that. He might come snooping around uh, the, the rodent, rodent that he is. Um, but oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, uh, the rodent that he might just possibly be to say it euphemistically. Sorry, I didn't want to be insulting to you there, Michael. But, um, you know, this pattern of uh, of people using various cutouts to engage in speech policing and things like that. It's not just the United States. I want to turn right now to what's been going on in Ireland with Conor McGregor. OK, and I'm sure there's going to be a. Uh, uh, yeah, here it is. So we talked about this yesterday, Conor McGregor, Ireland, many people in Ireland, very upset about their government subsidizing the moves of all sorts of migrants. 
And as I mentioned, I'm an anarchist. I don't like political anything. The government, uh, all polices are immoral. And I don't see how anybody can actually say that there is a political border when the border is established by politicians and the decisions of the politicians actually can't be seen as actually reflecting the interests of the majority in any way. Nobody knows, right? You can have cultural borders. You can have borders about private property and things like that. But within this system, I think it's very clear that even as an anarchist, I can agree with so many people who say, yeah, uh, let's not have tax money being spent on moving people into hotels in Ireland or Massachusetts, wherever it might be. There's more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. On Free Talk Live, we're bringing people to the ideas of liberty every day. From wrestling superstars like Glenn Jacobs. You guys really are having an impact, I believe. Like I said, uh, a lot of where I am now is due to listening to Free Talk Live. You changed my mind on some very important issues years ago. To random people tuning in on the radio. I was kind of stuck in the left-right paradigm. I heard your show by chance on a Saturday night. From there, I went on joined the Free State Project and become an amplifier. So, I mean, that's really the reason why I amp is uh, because I know that if it wasn't for you guys being on as many stations as you are, I never would have found the ideas of liberty. You can help more people hear the message of liberty by joining Free Talk Live's AMPS program on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. And you'll get access to special perks. Visit amps.freetalklive.com, amps.freetalklive.com. This is Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, the creator of the Liberty Conspiracy, you might say. And thanks for joining us on this program. Well, it's time for us to hit a little something about journalists. The theme comes to us from the 1990s when the Sex Pistols went back on tour for their Filthy Lucre tour. And they did a song called New York. And John Lydon, playing in his old hometown of Finsbury Park, said, Good evening, Finsbury Park! And then they ran right through a set of music that was phenomenal. It's a great live record. And he offered this comment before they ripped into the song, which leads us into our first subject. And a journalist... Oh, yes. Any, any journalists out there? Well, my friends, guess what? Guess what? The Hill is reporting some information about the Washington Post. Oh, you see the headline. Let me bring the music down for you here. Here we go. The Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos. Despite the fact that Jeff Bezos was able to support the Washington Washington Post for a long, long time, thanks to CIA contracts. <laughs> awesome. Yes, indeed. Washington Post braces for layoffs. Oh, as Kiss would say, oh, no, tears are falling. Oh, I'm so sad. I feel so bad. 
Oh, and and despite the fact that the Portman Murphy countering propaganda, foreign propaganda bills shelled out bunches of money to all the dinosaur news, they're still dying. The Washington Post. The Washington Post has been able to attain just half of the job reductions it needs to secure before the end of the year. The newspaper's leadership said this week, sorry, I read that rather clunkily. They've only been able to reduce half the job reductions they need to secure before the end of the year. In a note to staff shared with multiple outlets on Tuesday, Post Interim CEO Patty Stonecipher, sounds like something from the Flintstones, <laughs> Stonecipher. Uh, you know, she broke the Enigma code for Fred and Wilma. Yeah, she said in the uh, company memo that they had accepted 120 voluntary buyouts as the corporation subcorporation of Amazon seeks to cut some 240 jobs across its newsroom. Gee, maybe that instinct I had about reading news reports that seemed like they were written by AI, maybe that might be right. I think we know the writing on the wall for the Washington Post, and it's not in, uh, in um, what do they call that, aerial font or whatever that stuff is there. The New Times Roman, right? <laughs> no, the writing on the wall is in Helter Skelter. That's what it is. Oh, man. Hey, by the way, I, I didn't know until years later that Helter Skelter was really just the, the slide thing that the Beatles went on, you know, like Paul McCartney went on when he was a kid. You go, He was just the songs about going down a slide and go back up again, Helter Skelter. And then, unfortunately, was sullied and destroyed by the Manson family. Sort of like journalism has been destroyed by many of the pop journalists out there who call themselves journalists. Just for a little taste of something here. Uh, and it actually is going to lead us into another story. And you, you might have seen Don, Don Jeffrey's comment on this. Great, great information. So um, please recall, don't, don't forget that when the DNC claimed that it got hacked during that year of the the Russian hack narrative myth that they put forward in 2016 with uh, pretty much starting with the Portman Murphy thing and then leading to the NDAA where the Portman Murphy thing was finally passed in December of 2016 and put into the NDAA for 2017 but it included the DNC so-called hack which, as I mentioned yesterday, as you probably know, William Benny, who trained Edward Snowden, said that it was not a hack because the data couldn't have been moved that fast over phone lines. It had to have been done internally. And it likely was done by Seth Rich, who contacted WikiLeaks and who died just hours before going over to meet the FBI because evidently he was going to blow the whistle on some nefarious things that the DNC was doing under Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is, for some strange reason, still a congresswoman from Florida, despite that fact that as she headed up the DNC, it was revealed that her DNC was favoring Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, giving Hillary Clinton debate questions that were going to be in a CNN debate that they didn't give to Bernie Sanders. And of course, despite the fact that Debbie Wasserman Schultz had an assistant in her congressional office who got caught just at the airport as he was trying to escape to the Middle East, because, of course, he was 
maybe not doing some good things regarding uh, data and money and all sorts of stuff in Washington, D.C. So Debbie Wasserman Schultz got reelected. And of course, that little sidetrack brings us back to last week when Thomas Massey was a week and a half ago when Thomas Massey was talking about the proposal that he tried to eliminate that is actually part of a statute that we'll see by 2026 uh, monitors put into all automobiles, mandated for all the corporations, because the United States is not fascist in any way, as we know. And uh, they will have to have all sorts of gauges on them to tell whether or not we're driving safely or not. It'll be sort of like one of those Rube Goldberg things. It'll be like giant blocks of metal and stuff. It'd be a lot like Brazil, you know? Or it might actually be like, you know, spy monitoring with algorithms and using spy satellites and telemetry and sending information from, you know, computer boxes inside the cars. So anyway, talk about the Flintstones. I'd rather have a Flintstone mobile. So uh, that's Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And she claimed that it wasn't a kill switch for the cars, which is just euphemism for saying uh, it's not going to do what it actually says it's going to do. So that's Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She headed up the DNC. But the Washington Post got the exclusive scoop on the DNC so-called hack as they continue to promote this idea that the DNC had been hacked. Uh, And I've mentioned this before. The tech reporter for the Washington Post who put out the report about what really happened supposedly for the dnc computers well she didn't have to turn to the fbi you know which you can see whether or not the fbi could have been trusted at that time either because of course shortly thereafter they withheld the hunter biden laptop and of course worked with other intel agencies supposedly to promote the fraudulent canard the faux story that it was had all the earmarks of Russian propaganda campaigns when it didn't, and it was real, and it had it had a uh, a chain of evidence all the way through, and all the way through to the computer guy who was repairing it. Everybody knew this. Uh, so, and in fact, we also know that the FBI asked the New York Times not to promote the truth about it. So. Whether or not it would have been handled any better by the FBI, the DNC computers, I don't know. But the DNC gave the computers to this guy who ran this organization, this so-called security organization called CrowdStrike. That guy, I think, is like uh, Aperov, Apervovich or something like that is his name. He's a member. He was at that time a member of the Atlantic Council. He's a deep stater. Highly, highly intimately involved with, later on, the organizations that later on helped overthrow, or actually had earlier overthrown the government of Ukraine, and, of course, continued the stretch of NATO into Ukraine. That was the guy to whom they gave their computers to CrowdStrike. So that brings us back to the Washington Post, because, as I've mentioned before, I embarked during that summer when CrowdStrike released its report the Washington Post beat everybody to the gate on the report. And it was this, I can't remember her name was Ang or Wang or something like that, writing for the Washington Post. And she had a 2,000 word report. Now, I'm sorry if, if you've heard me t- talk about this before on the show, but if you're new, maybe this will be new information for you. You may want to pass it on to somebody. The day it was released, the Washington Post, they, the, the, the company CrowdStrike released their press release at nine in the morning. Before noontime, 
the Washington before I think it was a, like eleven o'clock. It was like two hours later. The Washington Post's reporter had a two thousand word piece, and I know it was because I copied and pasted it into a Word document and did the word count on it. It was a two thousand word piece about how CrowdStrike had determined that it was hacked by Russia, and it wasn't done. It, this it was not possible. Not possible. Just like the all the that 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 ridiculous uh, fantasy that the Russians had influenced the election with what a four thousand dollar buy that it was you don't even know if it was a Russian government buy of of, uh, of stuff on on Facebook that's what it was no how about the United States government and the FBI and various groups with which the FBI worked influenced the election how about the DNC influenced the primaries when it wasn't supposed to. How about CNN also worked with the DNC to influence the primaries through handing the DNC their questions, which the DNC then fed to Hillary Clinton, which was exposed likely not by the Russians, but by Seth Rich. And if we get right into it, this report that was reported by the Washington Post there's no possible way a 2000 word piece can come out two hours after CrowdStrike releases its press release. But the Washington Post beat everybody, everybody else. It was later in the afternoon, but the Washington Post was before noontime. Why? Because the Washington Post had the inside track with CrowdStrike, I suspect, because the Washington Post was owned by Jeff Bezos and because Jeff Bezos had the CIA data contracts before Amazon moved in. So that's what I think was going on. I think the Washington Post for a long time, even going back to the 70s, I think the Washington Post had the inside track with the deep state when they wanted to get rid of Nixon. So the Washington Post, deep throat, gave this information to the Washington Post. And of course, Woodward and Bernstein were made household names when all it really was was a way to try to get rid of Nixon with that information. There's plenty of other things that people have done in the presidency that could have knocked them out as well. I'm not saying Nixon, what he did was white or clean or anything like that. But the Washington Post has been a a deep state shill for years. And this idea that they can release a 2000 word article in that amount of time that she can write it and get it out there, get it seen by the editor and the legal department before noontime, not happening, not happening at all. She clearly had the report the night before, and she wrote it the night before, at least the night before. So the Washington Post putting out the layoffs. Well, all right. That sounds okay to me. Yes, indeed. Wowie, wow, wow. And you know, everybody, that actually reminds me. Uh, you know, we had the opportunity to go into some pretty interesting stuff yesterday about the Secretary of Education. What's his name? Uh, We'll get into that. We'll get into that in just a minute. Let me go to to this other one. Uh, We get another theme. Okay, here we go. I want to hit you with this one. Here we go, everybody. You know it. Are you a boy girl or are you a girl boy? Are you a joy man? 
questions. It's so hard to tell. It's me. All right, here's a quick one, one and all, and it has to do with one of America's favorites, Rachel Levine. Oh, man, Rachel Levine right there. Here's the headline from Fox News. DOJ fails to stop Rachel Levine's emails being exposed in litigation over Alabama's sex change ban for minors. This actually is a weird one. We're going to touch on this lightly, give it to you quick. Here it is. Biden DOJ attempt to block Alabama sex change for minors forces Rachel Levine into litigation. What? The Department of Justice's attempt to stop Alabama's ban on sex change procedures and medications for transgender minors has forced a six assistant secretary for health and human services, Dr. Rachel Levine, otherwise known as Richard, into litigation after a judge recently compelled the transgender official to become a custodian in the case. What is this? This is very interesting. Alabama's Attorney General Steve Marshall is in the process of defending litigation against an Alabama law that made it a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison to prescribe puberty blockers or hormones to transgender children for a sex change. So they're already assuming on Fox News that children can be transgender, that humans can be transgender. No, sorry. You can have a mental problem and think that you're not in the right body, but you're not transgender. I'm sorry. doesn't work like that. And, of course, these are children. So, again, we get into this question that I brought up once before, which is, if you're going to have a state, and the state is supposed to be there to stop people from harming each other, but at the same time, you want to allow parental control over families without state meddling, then where does the government draw the line? You've got a constitution, you've got equal protection under the law, but you've got people who are not yet of age to be their own guardians. So parents are the ones who are supposed to control this, right? That's what I thought. Well, what happens if the parents think it's okay to have their children undergo this therapy? Is that so-called therapy, this body mutilation, is that acceptable or is it seen as violence? I don't know. But what's quite interesting about this is Rachel Levine did not want emails released that had to do with communications about kids and so-called gender. Isn't that interesting? How do we deal with that? Well, let's find out, shall we? Let's look at a little bit more on this one. This is very interesting. 
this is the uh, the Steve Marshall is in the process of defending litigation against an Alabama law that made it a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison to prescribe puberty blockers or hormones to transgender children for a so-called sex change and so-called transgenders. The Department of Justice requested to be a party in a lawsuit against this Alabama law. Okay, so that's the next step. And that was the mistake that brings in Rachel Levine because the state is now requesting Levine's own records going way back. So they opened themselves up to it. The Justice Department, so-called, of the Biden administration just just made Levine's records vulnerable. So here it is. The Department of Justice requested to be a party in a lawsuit against the Alabama law blocking sex changes for minors, otherwise known as bodily mutilation, making some federal officials subject to discovery. Discovery is a procedure during litigation in which parties present and request evidence before trial. Marshall then requested Levine's records, believing he is one of the primary voices in the federal government and relevantly in the Health and Human Services Department, which should not exist on the federal level, who is advocating for sex changes for children with so-called gender dysphoria. The DOJ then tried to block that request and offered Levine's former subordinate instead for discovery and also offered a FOIA response with unrelated search terms. The filing continued. So very clearly in Alabama, they asked for a FOIA request or they had a made a FOIA request or somebody attached to the lawsuit did. And they didn't even provide the right answers on FOIA from the Justice Department. That's the that's the Justice Department for you. You keep paying. It's just. However, a court ruled on November 17th that it, quote, finds that Admiral Levine's emails are relevant, given that Admiral Levine is a public official. Yeah. Here's what Je- Attorney General Marshall said. I am glad the court granted our motion to require HHS to search Admiral Levine's emails for documents relevant to our defense of Alabama's law. We look forward to reviewing the documents HHS produces as we continue to defend Alabama's children. The DOJ declined to comment, and the HHS has yet to respond for comment. Levine has been one of the most vocal voices in the federal government when it comes to transgender issues, the attorney general continued. And, of course, arguing that the U.S. military and your taxes should pay for people to get so-called gender-affirming treatment like hormone replacements and hormone changes and bodily mutilation. This is very interesting. It says there is no doubt that they they continue. Uh, Marshall said Levine has been. Oh, this is the uh, uh, DOJ saying this. Levine has been at the forefront of the Biden administration's. Oh no, this is this is Marshall. Sorry, Marshall says Levine has been at the forefront of the Biden administration's reckless promotion of sex modification procedures for children. There is no doubt about that, nor about the admiral's close involvement with radical organizations like WPATH, whose standards of care mandate, the standards of care 
issue mandates for the use of sterilizing hormones and surgeries to treat vulnerable children. All right. So again, we get to the concept of decentralization, real federalism, and the idea that at least on a state level, if you don't like what your state is doing, you can get out. Stay tuned for more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Eleutheromania, the insatiable desire for freedom. We have been enslaved for all our lives. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. It's Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, your host, and thank you for joining us. I am the creator of the Liberty Conspiracy, which you can find every Monday through Friday live starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to get involved and watch and chat, hit us up on Rumble or look us up on Rockman. Of course, both under the title Liberty Conspiracy. You can also listen or watch on my Twitter feed when we go live, and that is at Gard Goldsmith. That's G-A-R-D Goldsmith. If you don't like what your state is doing, you can get out, right? I would uh, prefer further decentralization. Again, these questions on where does parental control stop and parental abuse begin um, where can you hire out a doctor to give therapy to a child, uh, to give, say, oh, aspirin to a child to relieve X, Y, or the Z that you think is suffering? But where do other people come in to say, no, this child is not suffering sufficiently that you can give X, Y, or Z hormones because that's going to cause permanent damage? All of these questions are not questions that I feel that I am going to force my neighbor to pay for. It's not whether or not I have opinions on that. It's whether or not I can force my opinions on another person and make him or her pay for the system to police that. That's the question. All the other stuff is academic. Absolutely, I have very strong opinions about this, but when it comes to the morality of the state, that is very easy to answer. Regardless of my opinions, my opinions do not give me the right to force somebody else to pay for what I prefer or what I think is right, because that is engaging in aggression. That's why I'm an anarchist, one of the major reasons. Now, talk about abuse of children. It's time for us to move into a follow-up from yesterday's show, everybody. And for that, we turn to the wonderful, awesome people of Pink Floyd. We need to we need a theme. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. I think we don't need no education. We don't need no force control. Ah, uh, yes, indeed, yes. Teach to leave them kids alone. Still haven't seen this movie. Let me know if you think this movie's good. Teach them, leave them kids alone. 
Drop your comments in Rockfin chat or Rumble chat if you like the wall. All in all, it's just a brick in the wall. And of course, I'm I'm sure that uh, all of you, every single one of you out there, knows that Roger Waters, when he performs segments of the wall, is not engaging in anti-Semitism or in criticism of the state of Israel from the themes of the movie. The themes of the movie are anti-fascist. His father was killed in World War II fighting Nazis. The star of David on the pig that is in his live shows that floats around in the sky has to do, I think, with the state of Israel's Zionism expanding into Gaza, or it has to do with the fact that the Nazis looked at the Jews as being the money changers and they, they, um, uh, what do you call that when you um, um, scapegoated their economic, their poor economic system after World War One? They scapegoated the Jews because the Jews didn't conform to the New Testament, which forbids lending on interest. The Jews only go with the Old Testament which doesn't forbid lending on interest. Usury is not forbidden there. So the bankers, generally speaking, in Germany were mostly Jewish people. So they were easy targets for people who blamed the bankers for their economic hardships, right? Very clearly. So let's talk a little bit about what happened yesterday. As we know, education so-called secretary Cardona, and thanks for the positive vibes about remembering what my dad did. Got some nice messages on that as well. Uh, yes, he was there with Charlotte Iserbeet, and uh, they met Sam Blumenfeld. They were in Washington to try to dismantle the education department just a couple years after Carter started it. When Reagan came in, my dad was hired to go down there, and both my father and Charlotte left. And they dropped their salaries. They dropped their paychecks. They said, we're not changing anything. And we're just getting people's tax money. This is not right. And they both left. And my dad had a family to support and he, he quit. So it was, uh, it was an amazing thing. And he and Charlotte stayed friends for many years until my father died. And uh, it, was, uh, it was great to hear him. You know, he would always say, well, if you need a recommendation on doing research guard, contact Sam Blumenfeld or Charlotte Isby. She's really good. He's down in near Boston. She's in Maine. I was like, oh, thanks, Dad. Very cool. And I didn't realize that, you know, they were so well known nationally. Uh, so that was that was kind of nice to see that people admired their work so much. But uh, we saw that the secretary of education, Cardona, uh, misquoted Reagan. We don't know whether or not that was intentional. I have no idea whether it was intentional. Uh, but I want to give you this, a very good piece from the very fine folks at John Stossel's Twitter feed. So let me uh, show this to you. I think you'll, you'll find this pretty darn interesting. And, um, and uh, yeah, just pull this back here because they actually cover some positive stuff. With progressive ideals. So let's take yesterday's absurdity and, again, recommend something to folks just in case you might want to look for some information about the difference between the government trying to decide for everybody what is going to fit for education and homeschooling. And again, it goes to that question of, well, who decides what is okay for the child, the parents? Well, if we don't trust the parents to take care of their own kids, then how can we trust the parents to vote for a politician? And they're not the the kids of the politician. 
and somehow the politician is going to make a better decision with all the input and the special interests that the politician now controls. And they have no competition, government schools. They can basically ban anybody they want and get as much money as they want. Well, the only escape for many people for many years, as Sam Blumenfeld recommended, was homeschooling. Well, John Stossel and the folks at Mises both released good positive vibes on this. I want to show you this, folks. You probably are very well aware of these vibes, but it's good to reiterate. And if you're new to the question government uh, spheres and circles, our circle of friends, our family, uh, here we go. Episode three, public school versus homeschooling. By the way, this is Mises Media. Great stuff from Mises Media. In 2019, Harvard Law professor Elizabeth Bartholet published an article calling for a presumptive ban on homeschooling, which she believed conflicted with progressive ideals. Looks like Liz homeschooling Warren. presents both academic and democratic concerns, she argued. Public education makes children aware of important cultural values and provides skills enabling them to participate productively in their communities and the larger society through various forms of civic engagement. Even homeschooling parents capable of satisfying the academic function of education are not likely to be capable of satisfying the democratic function. Bartholet published her condemnation of homeschooling as faith in America's public school system was plummeting, yet she neglected to provide any comparative analysis. So how do the two systems stack up? Following progressive educational theories, the federal government began exerting more authority over education in the 20th century, imposing national standardized testing in 1965 and establishing a federal education bureaucracy, the Department of Education, in 1979. In the 21st century, both George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind and Barack Obama's Common Core demanded federal funding bureaucratic oversight, and standardized testing for public schools. Since 1970, the results have been dismal. The government massively increased educational expenditures, resulting in the expansion of school administration, which has vastly outpaced the growth of both students and teachers. Today, taxpayers spend more than $15,000 per public school student, yet test scores have largely flatlined, and in some areas, even declined. These results became especially concerning after No Child Left Behind. Just to pause it there, folks, at this point, 1994, right there in the graph, I just want to mention to you that in 1994, the scholastic aptitude test people changed a lot of things for the SATs so that you can't even compare SATs after 1994 to SATs before 1994. They changed the amount of time that kids got to take the tests, whether it be the reading and writing test or the math test, comprehension, essays, any of that stuff. All of it was changed. They made the math questions easier. And then eventually they allowed kids to bring calculators in. So there's no quantitative or qualitative way that anyone can compare before and after 1994. That, I think, clearly was done as a way to allow the abysmally performing government, public government-run school systems to claim that they were getting improvement. 
But even with the change, as you can see, they actually didn't get improvement. They could only claim that it hadn't gone down. Let's continue. Tied school funding to test scores, pressuring teachers to devote more time to teaching the test at the expense of other subjects. While public school test scores are dropping, homeschooled students, by contrast, score consistently as much as 30 percentile points above the national average. The difference exists even when comparisons are between students from households with similar economic and education levels. Why the disparity? Parents who are involved in and spend discretionary money on their children's education are more likely to want good results. In the public school system, bureaucrats spend anonymous tax money to fund a factory modeled system for everyone. But homeschoolers aren't just better students. Although socialization is the most commonly cited benefit of public education in comparison to homeschooling, homeschoolers significantly outperform their public school peers when tested for social, emotional, and psychological development. With all the claims that the public school environment promotes social development, it is puzzling how public schools group children according to their age, creating an environment where students interact almost exclusively with children at the same level of maturity and with little resemblance to real life. Far from being isolated, homeschoolers enjoy greater opportunity to socialize with people of all ages. Homeschool co-ops, for example, bring students together for group lessons often taught by parents with expertise in the subject, as well as field trips, sports, and musical education. Unfortunately, many families that would prefer to homeschool simply can't afford to withdraw their children from public schools. The result are families being victimized twice, being forced to finance the very schools they would prefer to leave. Good stuff, good stuff. And I got to say, you know, folks, Looking at a video like that, I think it's important to bring up something else, too, uh, which is, you know, as as we ask these questions and they pop up a lot, they pop up all the time when we look at issues of federalism, state rights. You look at the trans so-called trans kid therapy thing with that Rachel Levine story in Alabama, how much power is parental power and so on and so forth. Especially when we get into the education stuff, it becomes very, very easy to 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 decipher this. One of the things that I, I almost always try to do at least a few times a day is to pause and see whether or not I've used the term we. Because that is the forced inclusion. That is the pronoun of aggression of the state. We, our, right? And so... One of the things that I notice is people will say, well, how do we address education? Uh, is how do we address problems of, um, you know, do we allow this or that? It's not up to me. The minute I say, what should we do about education, about a child's education, that immediately means, that I'm forcing somebody else into it. It should be up to the parents. It, the, the question of whether or not homeschooling is better than government schooling is also a bit of a misdirection. Even though it is, that's a consequentialist point of view. What if it weren't? 
The point is, it's not my right. It's not my place to make somebody else educate his or her child the way I want that child educated. But moreover, even if one says, well, what if the parents are putting the kid into a cult or abusing the, the child or something like that? The state paradigm somehow assumes that it's okay for me, not the point that people typically see that it's okay for me to form a group to stop that predation on the child. That's not the question. The question is, because it's the state, do I have a right to take some third party and attach him to me to say, I am going to make you pay for what I think is appropriate to tell those parents to stop doing what they're doing? Because I think they've reached a threshold. They're Mormons. They're Quakers. They're cultists. Whatever it might be. They're abusing the child more or something like that, right? They've tied tied the child up. I hear screaming inside. What do I do? Well, even if I've reached a point where I say, I think I can recognizably say that the parents are mistreating that child. I don't have a right to take somebody else and say, now you must do what I say, and you too must pay for the protection of that child. I don't have that right, because now I'm assuming that I can engage in aggression based on my threshold of what is acceptable or not acceptable for somebody else, which means somebody can do it to me. Hence, we get all the way across the planet to the Middle East in a debate about Israel and Gaza. Who's right? Who's wrong? I don't know, and I can't figure it out. But the least I can figure out is that in not knowing how that should be resolved, in thinking, I think the Zionists have been pretty aggressive, I'm still not going to take that extra step to say, I know what's right, so now I can use the force of the state to tell my neighbor to pay for what I think is right. It doesn't work that way. The entire concept of police protection for children assumes much too much. And people skip that because it's the what do we do about parents who are abusing kids with their sex therapy things or their bad education things? Well, who draws the line? Right. And again, if you're asking, well, how are we how are we going to protect kids? Well, that's a consequentialist thought. It's not up to you to decide how you are going to protect somebody else's kids if it means that you are assuming we for somebody else. It doesn't work that way. That's aggression. That is conceit, arrogance, and hubris, all of which are utterly, utterly poisonous. And people constantly get into this behavior. And it grows and grows. That's how you get the Department of Education. Because the small differences are not allowable. You got to protect against the small differences. Then you have smaller groups. And that's not allowable because the collectivists say, well, we can't trust the small groups. Again, it's internally inconsistent because if you can't trust the parents to take care of their own children with their own love, how can you trust parents from all over the place to vote to take care of other kids and have an establishment to do it? That's logically inconsistent. So that's that's between the practical outcome and the moral, the immoral start of it, right? It's logically unsupportable anyway. It falls on its own weight. Now, uh, by the way, 
one thing we know, I was talking about Seth Rich before. I want to give you this one just to make sure that I've got this for you. Uh, according to the post-millennial, the FBI is going to be required to hand over the laptop owned by Seth Rich. It's a FOIA request. I should have brought this up earlier. Apologize. I was talking about the Seth Rich stuff. In fact, I was going to make that a transition. I just jumped right into the next issue. Judge Amos Mazant of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Texas ruled that the FBI has to release the laptop, siding with Brian Huddleston. What's this all about? On Tuesday, a judge ordered that the Federal Bureau of Investigation hand over the laptop that belonged to Seth Rich, the 27-year-old Democrat National Committee staffer who was shot and killed on July 10, 2016, while walking back to his Washington, D.C. home. Of course, that was in the early morning. A few hours after that, he was supposed to go to the FBI. Judge Amos Mazant, and don't forget, you know, um, Seymour Hirsch has mentioned that it's his strong belief as well that uh, Seth Rich uh, was uh, already talking with the folks at WikiLeaks and um, uh, Julian Assange has implied as much. Judge Amos Mazant of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Texas ruled that the FBI had to release the laptop, siding with Brian Huddleston the man who filed a lawsuit against the FBI for failing to provide the material after he submitted a Freedom of Information Act request. He goes through the memorandum of order. According to Just the News, Texas resident Huddleston filed the FOIA requests in both 2017 and 2020 with the FBI related to his investigation into Rich's murder. You see how long they delayed. They wouldn't want to, they wouldn't, wouldn't release it. Now, whether there's anything still on it, I don't know. But Don Jeffries makes a really good point, and he brought up the point that Seth Rich's family did an about-face for some reason and didn't want to talk to anybody about it, even though Seth Rich's murder uh, doesn't seem to be random in any way. It didn't seem like it was a robbery in any way whatsoever because they left an expensive watch in his wallet. Uh, 2022 ruling from Mazant stated that the FBI had improperly withheld information with regard to Seth Rich's laptop, and they had it in their possession. While police have maintained that Rich was murdered during a botched robbery, some have attempted to claim that his death was somehow connected to the Democrat Party. As NPR reports, his parents settled a lawsuit with Fox News in 2020 over its role in pushing the original claims that Seth Rich was murdered. I don't understand why they would do that. Wouldn't they want it investigated? Wouldn't they want their son's death investigated? How troubling can it be to have an investigation into your son's death? I don't know. Very strange stuff. Very, very strange. Now, final thing I want to give you um, in our news flash, and it comes by way of Thomas Massey. And... Uh, there are a couple things on Thomas Massey that I, I want to mention. One of them I'm going to give you later, uh, but I do want to bring this up. And uh, oh, and there's another brief one too that I want to give to you. Uh, some very good news about Michael Schellenberger. Obviously, you know that we've been covering a lot of Michael Schellenberger's uh, investigations here. Uh, but Thomas Massey noted this about the jabs. We talk about those jabs in Poland and so on. 
In the United States, he says, not only does our government still have a COVID so-called vaccine mandate in place for those wishing to become U.S. citizens, it appears that it just morphed into a booster mandate. This is unscientific and unnecessary. My bill, H.R. 4726, would end this mandate. Yeah, good job. And of course, Thomas Massey uh, wants to uh, allow people the freedom that they should be able to have if they're raising cattle, that they could slaughter the cattle on their own farms rather than having to farm them out to giant slaughterhouses. I mean, just just amazing the stuff that the federal government gets involved with, with the USDA and the FDA and all that other nonsense. It's just crazy. You know, how are they how in the world? Let's just say, you know, even if people thought that it was a better thing to have, you know, some giant agra conglomerates handling the slaughtering to have the big wigs getting all the business because they could have the government make the laws up that make the small guys have to ship their cattle someplace else. Um, What about the Fourth Amendment? How about that? How about that? Where does the government get off inspecting farms? Government agents aren't supposed to enter private property unless they have warrants. It's just amazing. And the excuse that they give is, well, we just won't let you sell over state borders. Well, what happens if they do? What are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to come after them with your government guns. That's what you're going to do. Yeah, you got to watch them. You got to to surveil people, right? Well, the Fourth Amendment supposedly protects us from that stuff. Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live will continue. We continue on Liberty Conspiracy live on Free Talk Live. I want to go to this uh, this new proposal out of Washington, D.C. from the Senate. Check this out. And I'm not going to play the gun theme right now. Here we go. Check this out. This comes from Morning Joe. And this is Angus King from Maine, of course, where they had the shooting up there over a month ago. And listen to the way that they open this story on Morning Joe with Mika Brzezinski. I wonder if she is mourning the loss of one of her father's pals, Henry Kissinger. 48 past the hour. It's been a month since the mass shooting at a bowling alley and restaurant in Lewiston, Maine, that left 18 people dead. A staggering number that only begins to show the magnitude of America's gun problem. The tragedy is one of more than 615 mass shootings in the U.S. All right. So we have to see what their definition of mass shootings is. That's from gun violence action. And oftentimes they will depict the shootings of people in gang violence as mass shootings. And they will also include in gun violence deaths. What are the top ways that people lose their lives to guns by pointing the guns at themselves? and committing suicide, but they don't distinguish between those things. So they call them gun violence deaths. They don't talk about how many violent crimes are stopped by people who have their own firearms, who are the real first responders. They don't talk about the fact that even if you could try to fathom why someone has a gun, the majority of gun purchases are done by people who are engaging in defense. And when more guns enter a population area or a geographic area, as John Lott has noted, 
violent crime goes down in that area over time compared to what it was before the guns saw their increase in the area. And relative to other areas that are similar demographically, their violent crime rate drops precipitously compared to those other areas. Now, you can't say it's causative, but it's very strongly correlated, especially when you look at the rise in violent crime in Australia and in England after they did. Australia has now done two gun buybacks, but they did their first gun buyback and so-called buyback, mega forced buyback. Uh, They did their first one after the Port Arthur shooting in the 90s, and violent crime did not go down. In fact, it went up for three years after that. And then only as people started to get more guns in the black market over the course of the next eight years, did violent crime start to level out and reach the level that it had been before they did the gun buyback. And then after that, they instituted another so-called gun buyback. In England, they back oh, more than 15 years ago now, back in 2002 or three, uh, established the ban on most all guns in private possession, except for uh, 22 gauges most of the time, uh, which you couldn't even keep at home. You had to keep them at a hunting club. And violent crime, of course, rose there. And uh, that that brought about the S19 police units that they had never had armed police before. But violent crime got so bad that they started to arm the traditionally famous around the world Bobby, who was just holding his nightstick. That was the famous image of the British Bobby. So that's a little bit of something that they're not mentioning here. U.S. this year. And gun violence has killed more than 39,000 Americans so far in 2023. You think think if they're so concerned about gun violence deaths that they'll speak out about the United States handing guns to Israel and Ukraine and other places? Oh, they're not. They're not talking about that. Deaths that far outpace the rest of the world. Today, To fight this epidemic, four senators are introducing new legislation. They're trying again. The gas operator... And, of course, they're breaching the Constitution. So right off the bat, establishes a list of prohibited firearms. Unconstitutional. Limits high-capacity ammunition devices. Unconstitutional. What is high-capacity? It's up to them. Creates a voluntary firearm buyback program. Unconstitutional. They are granted no so-called constitutional power to hand money to people to buy back anything. It also outlaws bump stocks, as they are called, and other conversion devices, also unconstitutional. It's not within the power of the U.S. government to outlaw any product. They can impose an excise tax on it, as they did in 1934 with the uh, Firearms Act. But as I mentioned the other night, if the Firearms Act tax infringes on your ability to get a firearm, that means that the Second Amendment, which came around after the excise tax portion in Section 1, Article Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. That means that the Second Amendment supersedes Section 1, Article 8, and the excise tax, tax at any level cannot be applied to anything that has to do with the right to self-defense because any tax on the, anything that you use for the right to self-defense is an infringement. Semi-automatic firearms exclusion or go-safe act. Joining us now, one of those lawmakers, independent Senator Angus King of Maine. It's great to have you. Great to see you. This is such an important issue. 
Tell us more about it, and is it going to happen? Well, the people that are sponsoring, I think it's significant. Of the four of our four principal sponsors, three have never sponsored an assault weapons okay. bill before. Well, that's- oh, that's just fantastic, isn't it? So we're we're taking a leap here and doing something that we think is absolutely necessary and will work. Uh, the what we're focusing on, it will work. Everybody knows prohibitions always worked when there's a demand for something. Works every time, Angus all the time they also prohibit murder didn't work in maine did it it's the way the gun operates rather than what it looks like okay because if if you say you're banning a gun because what it looks like the manufacturers can modify the the looks and then they escape the, the the ban so what we're focusing on is the high capacity magazine right this is the business end of these things that's what makes them so dangerous is when the shooter can keep shooting so our bill says you have to have a fixed magazine in the gun 10 bullets maximum no no uh no detachable magazine right. the shooter in lewiston had two magazines oh. duct taped together so when one ran out he could just flip it over and pl- plug it in that's what we're going after and they're okay so you're already saying that a criminally minded person can get more and carry it with them and create his own or her own, right? You're already saying that. And now you're saying you're going to stop that. I wonder, do you, do you, Mr. Angus King, do you put restrictions on the capacity for the magazines, for the firearms that you're sending to Israel and Ukraine? I wonder if you do that. Only 10 rounds max. I wonder. I wonder if that's if that's something you do. I wonder if it's something that you give to the soldiers of the American military that you send willy-nilly all around the world in 100 bases around the world. I wonder. I wonder if those people who are on the ground in Ukraine and Syria, I wonder if they have 10 max rounds or perhaps you're just a massive, massive hypocrite. There's some other uh, parts of it, too, but the the fundamental is to, to really get at this. Oh, they have an ad. All right. I want to break out of that and get to another facet of this. So I want to turn now to this story from my friend, Nikki. You might know her as Liberty Doll, and I haven't shown Nikki for a while, and I want to do so right away because she's done an excellent job covering something. And uh, in fact, before I even do that, uh, I want to show you Toby Leary because Toby had some comments on this. And of course, he's a, another a fellow conspirator and a friend of the show. So he is from Cape Gunworks and uh, he had some comments about this as well. And I would be neglectful if I did not give these to you. So here is what he had to say right here. You don't have the constitutional authority. Where in the Bill of Rights can you restrict our right to keep and bear arms? Just like you have no authority to restrict speech, religion, peaceful assembly, the right to vote, etc. You have no authority to restrict protected arms. If you do, if you do, since you are in power, it would be an abuse of power. It is time for U.S. Code Title 18, Section 242. Of course, that's color of law to kick in and hold these oath-breaking, soulless creatures accountable. Absolutely right. And he refers to the same video that I found today. 
So we're both, and in fact, he's got the three-minute version of it. Uh, we're both in the same same uh, same wavelength here. Now, in addition to that, I was going to compliment Toby for what he did yesterday, because actually it was um it was Tuesday. What he did Tuesday, uh, Toby testified. He took four and a half hours. He's usually on. Grace Curley show on Tuesdays for 2A Tuesday, but he was testifying for four hours to the Massachusetts legislature. He had to wait and do all this stuff, and he, he was able to testify at least a couple times. Uh, and they have anti gun legislation, as we know, that he has fought. They tabled it and they want to bring it back in January. And this would make it Virtually impossible for him to run Cape Gunworks in Hyannis, Massachusetts. He says all these proposals are are the constant solution in search of a problem, restricting the law abiding. Let's hear a little bit of what he has to say. I'm away for long lengths of time. James Madison, I'm glad I was able to figure that out. Thank you for having me on today. I'm Toby Leary from Cape Gunworks. Um, I would like to voice my opposition to all of the pending gun control bills. Uh, First and foremost, I think, as some have pointed out, the legislature lacks the constitutional authority to continue to infringe on our Second Amendment rights. All of these proposals are the constant solution in search of a problem. Restricting the law abiding for the criminal acts of a few is like cutting your leg off to prevent athlete's foot. We should focus on the swift criminal prosecution of violent criminal actors and lock them away for long lengths of time. James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, number 44, that the members of the federal government have no agency in carrying out the state constitutions into effect. But the members of the officers of state governments, on the contrary, have an essential agency in giving effect to the federal constitution. I ask all of the mass legislature uh, representatives here today to remember your oath of office and to uphold the constitution against all enemies, both, both foreign and domestic. The Mass Legislature has not been granted the privilege to enact gun laws, except those that are in the text of the Second Amendment and that have historical or traditional relevance at the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791. I would like to know where the Constitution... As I'd like to mention, of course, he's going by the Bruin standard, and that's where he and I disagree, um, because the First Amendment makes the... Uh, the Second Amendment, the text of the Second Amendment makes the second level of the Bruin standard, the historical analogs that would have come around just, uh, you know, before, just after the uh, adoption of the Second Amendment, uh, makes all those historical analogs moot because the Second Amendment is explicit and it's very clear. And if they made mistakes shortly afterwards on a local level here and there, it doesn't mean that those mistakes were acceptable. It means those mistakes were mistakes. And they have to be stopped. But Toby is trying to stop the Massachusetts gun bill that they keep renaming and they keep trying to bring it up. It would make it that you have to have I, um, I, uh, codes on every part of a gun, every piece. It would make it virtually impossible for him to sell semi-automatic, otherwise known as just single shot, not really semi-automatic. There's automatic and there's, you pull the trigger. That's it. It would make it uh, virtually impossible for teenagers to train. And uh, it would, it would put him out of business as well as uh, virtually all other gun shop owners in Massachusetts. Now I want to turn to Nikki 
otherwise known as Liberty Doll, and show you a little something that's happening in Arizona, of all places, which is supposed to be the state that is, you know, next to Texas, known for being famous for gunslingers. You got Colorado, maybe Nevada, but it's one of them, I'll say. Well, you know, if you know Liberty Dolls, she and I are friends, and um, I haven't shown Nikki for a while, so wanted. Uh, take the opportunity to show you a little something from another friend of the conspiracy. Excellent work on the part of Liberty Doll with something that's very amazing. And it shows you the mindset of the people who think that they can get the government, not just to destroy your rights, but to destroy, not just to destroy your right to individual self-protection, but to destroy your right to free speech with their canard of so-called public health. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the channel. Now, I don't know anything about the political demographics of Flagstaff specifically, but I'm surprised to hear that this is happening in Arizona. It actually reminds me a lot of the town in California that put a temporary ban on business permits just so they didn't have to give a permit to an outdoor sporting shop that also happened to occasionally sell a few pew-pews. This case is also especially interesting because the city isn't looking to ban advertising from everywhere in town or even private property. If that were the case, they wouldn't really have to go through many hoops because a private citizen could decide which businesses are advertised on their property and which aren't. Instead, they're trying to freeze out a gun range from running a silent 10-second ad that has already been on the regular rotation at the city airport. And because it's government property and the government is looking to ban him from advertising, and that makes it a First Amendment issue. Timberline Firearms and Training is owned by Navy vet Rob Wilson. He has had a silent 10-second long ad on the regular summer rotation over Flagstaff Pulliam Airport's baggage carousel since 2019. The ad ran only during tourist season when people flock to the area and there's a huge uptick in outdoor sporting business. There has also never been a single complaint about this advertisement. But this summer, when Wilson reached out to officials to renew his ad, it was rejected for violating the city's new ban on displaying, quote, violence or antisocial behavior in its new advertising policy against depicting guns. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is where the plot thickens, because it turns out that the policy doesn't actually exist. The key thing about this is that this is on government property, public property. So if this were private property, people could decide what they wanted for the level of speech to accept or not accept. So I'll bring up two points. First, again, we go to the Marsh v. Alabama case. And the Marsh v. Alabama case, again, if you can separate out the idea of a business asking for corporate status, and we're just talking about the decision of destroying the concept of private property for business owners, that was a shipbuilding company in Alabama that had a campus and they would allow their employees, because they had so many employees, to stay over. They had a little post office and things like that. Much like when I worked at a farm stand, Jamaican guys would come up and they had cabins for the Jamaican guys who could stay there over the summer at this farm stand. They had many cabins on their property. Well, a woman who was a Jehovah's Witness back in you know early 1940s, uh, she was walking around the campus proselytizing her religion. 
the business asked her to leave. The business owners asked her to leave and she would not. Then they called the police and they arrested her for trespass. Well, she fought that and it ended up going to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court populated by FDR hold, FDR appointees who didn't care about private property. And, and by the way, this is what opened things up to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, so-called public accommodations portion. It's what they it's it's what turned any business into a so-called public accommodation because they said, well, you are open for business. This is what we call the public square. And some people and David would bring, will bring this up. He'll say, well, you know, there's a difference between a place that's made to be the public square, as Google might say that uh, YouTube is supposed to be or something like that, and a place that's open for commerce and trade and, uh, you know, for retail sales. Uh, if it's a place that's open like a campus, like that they have created, that they created in the Marsh v. Alabama case for the shipbuilding company, uh, then they have to be open to everybody. But that is someone else saying that that is how that property, that's David's saying there's a difference between how he will see the government treat that other person's use of that property. So if they're doing a retail sale on that property, he distinguishes that from if it is an open area for, a, say, a large company that typically allows people to come and go. But that, again, is is up to they have to have their own rules about allowing people to come and go. They're still going to have rules on that, whether they're making sales, retail sales there, or it's there as part of their larger operation for their business. They've got to have some sort of control over that. And it's not my place to tell them, well, you're not doing that like retail sales. So I'm going to tell you that you have to accept this woman proselytizing on your property. It's not my place. It's just not my place. The Supreme Court in 46 ruled that it is the place of government. It is the place of whoever can get the majority or the politicians to tell that person at the shipbuilding company, you must accept that person on your property. That led to the 64 Civil Rights Act and what, you know, David distinguishes between the retail space and so on. They applied that concept to retail space, but it doesn't matter. It's still the arbitrary decisions of government people. So they're still saying, well, we had this distinction before. Maybe we, we never really uh, thought about retail places, but now we're going to do this. It's still a public place. You're open to the public and therefore you must accept everybody. Right. Well, that leads private property to become de facto public property. Public property is that which has tax money applied to it. And in this case, we're seeing all private property, all businesses, except for residences where you might live, unless it's a rental place. And then, of course, they're going to come in with more government regulations. You've got to be fair. You've got to do this according to their eyes. You've got to be equal this, that, and the other thing according to their eyes. You can't operate it the way you want to. So the distinction here is this really is a public place where tax money is spent on it. And that is where everybody starts to argue because despite the fact that you're supposed to have the right to free speech, how is it that everybody who might want to advertise at the airport should have a right to have his advertisement picked up by, by the, by the airport? If it's government run, should they even have to buy? Shouldn't they be able to just walk in 
and hold up signs and say, go to our place. And I'll show you the distinction. If you were to take the Marsh v. Alabama standard and say it's okay because that company had established its area, the shipbuilding company had established its area for people to come and go, and you don't pay attention to the fact that they still have the right to be able to decide what sorts of behavior they will allow on the coming and going, right? Or whatever they want to decide. Maybe they say, okay, we're not going to allow any more coming and going. It should be up to them, right? I didn't invest the money. You didn't invest the money. They invested the money in their business, right? Well, if we're going to apply the public standards, which is everybody's got to be allowed there. We've turned it into public property, even though tax money is not used on that Marsh v. Alabama shipbuilding company, even though tax money is not used on that retail space. And I see no distinction between those two. There's plenty more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live, discussing Twitter, property rights, censorship, and the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in 46 ruled that it is the place of government. It is the place of whoever can get the majority or the politicians to tell that person at the shipbuilding company, you must accept that person on your property. That led to the 64 Civil Rights Act and what you know, David distinguishes between the retail space and so on. They applied that concept to retail space, but it doesn't matter. It's still the arbitrary decisions of government people. So they're still saying, well, we had this distinction before. Maybe we, we never really uh, thought about retail places, but now we're going to do this. It's still a public place. You're open to the public and therefore you must accept everybody. Right. Well, that leads private property to become de facto public property. Public property is that which has tax money applied to it. And in this case, we're seeing all private property, all businesses, except for residences where you might live, unless it's a rental place. And then, of course, they're going to come in with more government regulations. You got to be fair. You got to do this according to their eyes. You got to be equal this, that, and the other thing according to their eyes. You can't operate it the way you want to. So the distinction here is this really is a public place where tax money is spent on it. And that is where everybody starts to argue because despite the fact that you're supposed to have the right to free speech, how is it that everybody who might want to advertise at the airport should have a right to have his advertisement picked up by, by the, by the airport? If it's government run, should they even have to buy? Shouldn't they be able to just walk in and hold up signs and say, go to our place. And I'll show you the distinction. If you were to take the Marsh v. Alabama standard and say it's okay because that company had established its area, the shipbuilding company had established its area for people to come and go. And you don't pay attention to the fact that they still have the right to be able to decide what sorts of behavior they will allow on the coming and going right? Or whatever they want to decide. Maybe they say, okay, we're not going to allow any more coming and going. It should be up to them, right? I didn't invest the money. You didn't invest the money. They invested the money in their business, right? Well, 
if we're going to apply the public standards, which is everybody's got to be allowed there, we've turned it into public property, even though tax money is not used on that Marsh v. Alabama shipbuilding company, even though tax money is not used on that retail space. And I see no distinction between those two. It doesn't matter whether those people intended to open up their their um, little town green that they've created on their their business property that they own. And they've allowed people to come and go. They still can close it off at any time. They can change the stipulations or whatever, unless there's a contract with me. And they say, yes, we're going to allow you to come in and raise your flag every day. And you're paying us $20 to do it. If I have paid them $20 and then they don't allow me, that's breach of contract, right? But that's different than having a third party called the state enter and say, no, we're going to change that stipulation now, right? That's also a breach of the contract clause for all the employees who started to work there on the agreement that they had that campus to work on. The Constitution stipulates that no state can interfere with the fulfillment of private contract, which would mean that if you open up a business and the state or in this case, the federal government sentimentally starts to interfere with you, that's immoral. And if the state does it, it's unconstitutional. They don't put that stipulation on the U.S. Constitution, but it was understood that the U.S. Constitution didn't have that power. So it was never it was never thought of that the U.S. Constitution could say, hey, your shop, your retail place or your shipbuilding place, we're going to go in and tell you that you have to accept everybody. But on public places where tax money is spent, then you've got some questions. So I want to run through this just briefly on the textual constitutional level and then on the principal philosophical level. On the textual constitutional level, what Liberty Doll is discussing here in Arizona does not really pertain to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Because, as I've mentioned, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution stipulates that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or freedom of assembly on a public place, right? Freedom of religion on a public place, anything like that, right? They can't do that. And they certainly can't do it on private property, right, which they did during the lockdowns for churches all over the place. But if we're just focusing on public property, The First Amendment says Congress shall not. You have to look at the Arizona Constitution, which I actually did when I went through and went through how the governor wanted to have her uh, ban on firearms for so-called she was doing her emergency action a couple months ago. Remember that? Well, if you look at the Arizona Constitution, they have a Bill of Rights in it and it stipulates free speech. So that means that if you've got a place where tax money is being spent on it, now you're opening it up to the tragedy of the commons. And again, it reveals the fraudulent nature of this this uh, this fantasy story that they tell people that the government is there to protect your rights. Because it's not possible for the government to run a place like an airport and protect your free speech rights at the same time. It can't even facilitate your free speech rights. Because if everybody wanted to go into the airport and speak and do whatever they wanted, have concerts there for whatever reason, according to the Arizona Constitution and according to the U.S. Constitution on a federal level, Congress is not supposed to make any laws. That's why the FCC shouldn't exist. But also the state of Arizona shouldn't make any laws. 
So at the 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 tip of the of the iceberg here is the image of the Second Amendment, right? But it's not really about the Second Amendment here. It's about freedom of speech. It's about federalism. It's about understanding that the First Amendment only applies to the U.S. Congress. And in every speech case where a state is taking action, you have to look at the state constitution if you want to deal honestly on a constitutional level. On a philosophical level, then you start to see that the story, this fantasy story that they tell people that the state is there to protect your rights is unworkable on any logical level. It is a total QED from the start because in order to exist, it has to take your stuff. You have no right to your private property, even though they say the government is being created to protect your private property and everything else follows from there. The government is there to protect your freedom of speech. Well, how can everybody speak in a courtroom? That's a public place. No, they're going to restrict it because, of course, people also have a right to a fair and speedy trial. So how do you mix those things, right? If everybody's got a right to free speech in a public place, then how can everybody speak at the public place at the same time? It's not possible. And this is what they did with Marsh v. Alabama. When they made that decision, they turned all private places into de facto public places, completely immoral and unconstitutional. And they also, regardless of what the people say when they open it up, we're going to welcome everybody or not. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. It's the imposition of the state's opinion about how that property is going to be used. That's the immorality. That's the breach right there. And it continued with the public accommodations portion of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So all this information is rock solid. Like, you can't lose a debate if you go through this stuff syllogistically. It's not possible to lose the debate on this. However, you will lose a political vote and you'll lose in court because the people in court don't care about this stuff. Let's go back to Liberty Dawn and get a little bit more about this Arizona. It's Flagstaff, Arizona and the airport. Okay, here we go. Oh, yeah, we got to go volume. It wasn't proposed or discussed by the city council until September. There we go. Or rather, it wasn't proposed or discussed by the city council until September, months after Wilson attempted to renew his ad in May. It didn't even receive a vote until the middle of this month. And even then, the final proposal was one to ban ads specifically for guns and ammo, not necessarily ranges and training. And it wasn't even adopted. So in that regard, you can see why this is all very similar to the California story that I mentioned earlier of a city banning a thing until they can come up with a rule to justify banning the thing. City officials claim that it's because when Wilson first started running the ad, the ad space was managed by a private third-party contractor, and now it's managed by the city directly, and they found his previously approved ad to be inappropriate content. But the First Amendment says that the government doesn't get to decide what is and isn't appropriate First Amendment speech, especially when that protected speech is in regards to another protected right. And the Supreme Court has affirmed that commercial speech enjoys First Amendment protections unless the government can prove a vested interest otherwise. And in this case, they cannot. They also claimed that the new ad was a video and therefore not subject to whatever First Amendment protections, which Rob's legal team says is a flat-out lie. Not only is the ad the same series of still photos used since 2019, it also has the original 2019 timestamp. 
But even so, video advertisements are covered just as much as photo and print. So Rob Wilson hired a team of lawyers alleging free speech and due process violations. And seeing as it's a First Amendment issue and the policy was created to justify their decision after the fact, it was pretty clear that the city was likely to lose. His attorneys had even argued a similar case, also in Arizona, a decade prior, and won. So, naturally, the city decided to take their ball and go home so no one could play with it in the form of banning all advertising in the airport and other city properties except for city advertising. Okay, there you go. So, of course, nobody can speak now except the government will speak for everybody because the government obviously reflects the interests of everybody, right? I wanted to give that to you. You can find Liberty Doll. She's up to 271,000 subscribers on uh, YouTube. And she had some problems with them a while back, but she's still rocking, 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 rocking. So good job, Liberty Doll. Really like her. And she's great. Nikki's awesome. And uh, yeah, in fact, we were going to get together. Uh, she, her husband, a friend of mine from New Jersey, we're all going to meet up at uh, Pork Fest. And I couldn't make it a couple years ago. So I was disappointed in that. But uh, give me your thoughts on that, everybody. I'm going to hop over to Rockfin Chat and Rumble Chat as well. And I want to mention to you that a little bit later tonight, I'm going to be joining Audi and Jason and, and Chris Graves. And I think Angry Tiger is going to be there. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, some uh, music stuff. Uh, joining up with Jason and everything, talking a uh, sort of a name that tune thing with Audi, of course, Modern Retro Radio. That's good stuff. Brian Taylor, thanks for being there. I really appreciate you being there. And um, I, I want to mention to you guys, I have some ideas next week about um, doing some specific things for the show uh, to expand the reach. So we'll talk about that uh, coming up next week. I want to give you my ideas, you you folks who are within the cabal. And I also want to mention um, that what I will start doing is if I forward any of these stories that I find to be disappointing, like they're, they're just recently, this MSN stuff has been very frustrating where they combine stuff and then they could just go off into another direction. Um, I'm going to start, you know, fishing out some of those stories and finding other ones because I'm very disappointed by some of these these uh, news stories. They're very, very frustrating. However, I'm not frustrated by what I can cover next for you. And for that, I'm going to give you a theme again, a good theme from some British guys, because it's time for us to, first of all, make up for one thing I forgot to do yesterday, which was to compliment Michael Schellenberger on his new position at a university and then go into that testimony about the big story that Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi and others have been covering and also go back in time because for some reason, someone I've been following on Twitter has not been appearing on Twitter for quite a while, but she just recently did, and she actually has been covering this subject for a while. Since we were talking about speech controls and we were talking about the public sphere versus private sphere and how they try to make everything the public sphere for your own good, of course, for the common good, as we heard that Irish PM saying, well, the nature of government is restriction of freedom. Yeah, she exposed it right there. If you saw last night's show. Yeah, all government has to operate. The only way it can operate is by restricting people's liberties and by infringing on liberty. That's right. That's right. So government is evil. 
government is the very thing that it tells you it's going to protect you against, right? From to leave a preposition dangling. Well, now let's hear Wire with their great attack on politicians. This is their song called The Art of Stopping. Great British band, and they say you got to trust them. You might be familiar with an REM cover called Strange. They did this originally. All right, it's all about politicians lying. Believe me, believe me. What are we talking about? Well, first, let's give some compliments to Michael Schellenberger and see the new position that he just got. Uh, this was November 29th, and I didn't mention it, and I apologize. And of course, I don't know Michael Schellenberger, but uh, I feel a kindred uh, association with some of his work because I think Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, and others uh, took a lot of the information. They didn't take take it from me or whatever, but they utilized a lot of the information that I've been uh, trying to get out at MRC TV, and they really expanded on it. They they got so many more people to see it. And, uh, of course, a lot of that came from the Twitter files releases. And I was working the other side of it from the Portman Murphy side and trying to follow it from Portman Murphy. They went backwards and followed some of the contacts and communications from various people going through Twitter and then found the connection to Portman Murphy, to uh, the Virality Project, and to the uh, NewsGuard people and so on and, and DARPA and so on. And there is another person, a researcher, whom I would love to have on the show uh, sometime soon. We'll talk about her in just a minute because she was on top of the latest story uh, about Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi or from them that saw testimony in front of Congress. She was on top of that about three years ago. But just to give you the heads up, real positive, University of Austin is pleased to announce their new CBR chair of politics, censorship and free speech, Michael Schellenberger. So that's cool. The question is, did they take tax money? Well, so maybe it's not so cool. Uh, but he writes, universities used to be about freedom of thought, but today are about reinforcing dogma. But now a new school, the University of Austin, has put free thinking at the heart of its mission. As such, I'm proud to become its CBR chair of politics, censorship, and free speech. Very, very cool. Congratulations to Michael Schellenberger, a guy who's worked very, very hard. And now let's see Michael Schellenberger up against New York Congressman Democrat Dan Goldman. Now, what's curious about this is on today's show on the video files, I actually had and it, it's funny. In addition to uh, a quick recap, I wanted to give the Reagan and Cardona thing, uh, but I actually got audio of. Uh, the so-called um, representative, as he spouted his bizarre theories and stupidity. But instead, so I'll just show you. 
And uh, instead of actually just playing the audio, now I can play you the video. So watch Michael Schellenberger as representative so-called Dan Goldman is humiliated by putting forward his own skepticism in the form of Mr. Schellenberger, uh, computers can be manipulated. And so all we have to do is look at the Hunter Biden laptop. Yeah, believe me. Check this out. This is amazing. Here we go. Glad you agree with me, Mr. Schellenberger, that Trent talked about the Hunter Biden laptop and how the FBI knew it existed. You are aware, of course, that the uh, laptop, so to speak, was actually that was published in the New York Post was actually a hard drive that the New York Post admitted here was not authenticated as real. It was not the laptop the FBI had. You're aware of that, right? It was the same contents. How do you know? Because because it's the same. I mean, it's, you would have to authenticate it to know it was the same, same contents. contents. You have no idea. You Are know, you hard drives can be manipulated. Are you suggesting the New York Post participating in a conspiracy to construct the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop? <laughs> no, sir. The problem is that hard drives can be manipulated by Rudy Giuliani or Russia. But what's the evidence that and that happens? What's well, the there is actual evidence of it, but the point is it's There's not no the evidence thing. Thing. So you're engaging in a conspiracy. I'm glad you agree with me, Mr. Schellenberger, that transparency is the most important thing. And my last question for you is, do you think it would be transparent if Hunter Biden came to this Congress and testified in a public hearing and more transparent than if he testified privately? It's I mean, literally, I've never thought about that. I have no idea. <laughs> You don't I've know. Literally, never thought about is that. Public testimony I, more I mean, transparent than private testimony. Hour. Are you familiar with the first Mr. Amendment? Chairman, I yield back. Congress shall take no action to abridge freedom of speech. Yeah, and that's what you just described, Mr. Schellenberger. Is thirteen percent censorship still censorship? Absolutely. And the other eighty-seven percent is what we call the chilling effect that the courts have long recognized that they engaged in. You've that done. is the problem. There's a broad op. By the way, part of the operation, Congressman Goldman, part of the operation was to change the terms of service. So you see them constantly trying to change the terms of service. You see them. It was 35 percent of of the URLs that were according to EIP were labeled, removed, or soft blocked. That's all forms of censorship. That censorship is not just removal. But 65 percent were not. So how can the government be so, so coercive? So does the First Amendment say that's about par for the course on government Does the First Amendment say the government can censor the time of the gentleman has They're not censoring. They're flagging in the social media companies. So under coercion, 35% of a First Chair, Amendment? Chair, it's not the First Amendment. It's the terms of service, as you said, and no. they are flagging it for the social media companies to make their own decisions. <laughs> that is not the First Amendment. That is the terms of service. We have just seen them. Congressman, you're an attorney. You know that the four federal judges have already ruled that and i know that it's on appeal in front of the supreme court right now (laughs) all right so just to decipher some of that stuff obviously schellenberger matt taibbi they were scheduled to testify about this new revelation that we discussed earlier the uh the new information about this uh, ctil right and they come from the twitter files there's the new info that schellenberger released and there's a lot more to discuss about this. So the CTI League has been around for a while. The CTI League was created by people who were told to create it, evidently, during the Obama administration. They worked in the Obama administration. They left, started this corporation, and then worked intimately 
with the government using government tools and techniques and communicating back and forth to make an echo chamber about things that were online that should be flagged. So we already saw with Schellenberger's revelations about the Twitter files and with Matt Taibbi's revelations about the Twitter files that the government was engaging in telling people to remove files that they thought were alarming, dangerous, and so on, or uh, misinformation or disinformation and so on. Now, regardless of whether one, one wants to describe it the way that that congressman from New York wants to describe it, Dan Goldman, as he claims that that's not engaging in censorship because you're actually just telling these online platforms that it conflicts with their so-called terms of service. Uh, that's a very fuzzy area, first of all. Second of all, there's nothing in the Constitution that lets anybody from the government engage in even that. There is no provision that says, well, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, but it also is not about whether Congress is stopped from doing that, because if you look at any of the enumerated so-called powers of the Constitution, they're not given any power to use agents of the federal government to watch over people's speech and then send out messages to people about that speech. It's just not a power that's granted to them. So whether it's prohibited by the First Amendment and they want to debate that, that's irrelevant. It's not permitted by any of the enumerated powers. And the Ninth and Tenth Amendments strictly state that anything that is not enumerated is not a power, and anything that is not enumerated is left up to the state. Thanks for listening to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life, and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com.